All right, well, when you've known a person for a long time, it can be tempting to think that you know what's going through their mind. And worse, you might be tempted to think that they know what's going through yours. Now, to be fair, you do have a certain level of understanding just from experience, right? I know, I know that if we go to a Mexican restaurant, Leah wants queso. I don't have to ask. I know that's going to be the case. But that does not mean that I know what goes through her mind. I don't know what, well, I'm sure you don't know what goes through your spouse's mind or through your, even your friend's mind. Here's your activity. If you wanted to, to do, take this challenge, go set up an Ikea piece of furniture together and see if you think the, the same way. See, it's dangerous to assume that you know how someone else thinks. And we, when we start to anticipate and start instead of communicate, it can lead to a lot of misunderstandings, false assumptions, and hurt feelings. We can be so familiar with each other that we fail to listen to each other. And in some ways, I actually think we have this same problem, so familiar that we fail to listen. I think we have the same problem with our text for today, with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because we've heard this story countless times, even outside of the church. The concept of the Good Samaritan is widely recognized. I mean, when you say the phrase Good Samaritan, it conjures up you know, someone who stops to help someone change a tire or a stranger who uh, tries to give CPR or an AED to, to someone who's in distress. But the danger in, no, in this well-known story is that we stop listening to the text and we start just assuming that we know what God is, is telling us here. So this morning, we're going to look at two ways to see this text. And both of them are important. Both of them are appropriate. And we'll see God's call to action, that we are to be merciful to those in need. We'll also see God's call to rest in his rescue, the rescue that he provides for us through Jesus Christ. And by looking at both of these facets of the parable, I think we'll come away with a fuller understanding and a better answer to the question, who is my neighbor? But before we get to the parable itself, let's set the scene. Let's color in the context of why Jesus is telling us this parable in the first place. So immediately, when we look at the text, we see that this religious lawyer, this expert in the law, came to Jesus with poor motives. Because Luke says it like this. He says, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And if you look closely at this question, it's nonsensical. It's utter nonsense. It's like asking, what does the color blue smell like? There's no, that doesn't make any sense because an inheritance is something that that you receive because someone else did something. Namely, they wrote you into their will and then they died. An inheritance is a pure gift. There's nothing that anyone can do to inherit something. Now, what's interesting is that this man is correct in asserting that eternal life is an inheritance. That eternal life is 
uh, is a gift. It's a free gift from God that went into effect at the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an inheritance. And then this man turns this very simple, pure gospel gift into law and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? And that question is probably one of the most common, prominent beliefs amongst false religions, that there is something I do to get eternal life. Something that I do that's going to have an effect on the eternal life inheritance. Because the Lord wants to give us eternal life as a gift by grace through faith on Christ alone. But the sinful nature wants to earn eternal life as a wage. And every time that Jesus, throughout the scriptures, encountered someone with this delusion, he typically poured on the law so that that person would see how impossible it is to earn eternal life. So the conversation continues, and he says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the man, this expert in the law, he replied with the standard answer that probably every Jew learned in Sabbath school. He answered, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Like nowadays, the Sunday school answer is Jesus. Old Testament, the Jews, the, the, the Jewish answer is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Much longer. We, we summarize it all into just Jesus. Much better that way. But this, this concept is straight out of the Pentateuch. It's basics of Jewish law. And generally speaking, it's kind of hard to go wrong when you answer a theological question with straight passages from Scripture. The man was right on the money. It's a perfect summary of the law. And so Jesus said to him, yep, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. All you have to do is love God and love your neighbor perfectly. Then you will earn eternal life. And at this point, the honest person we'll see a problem. Because if we're willing to gauge our hearts and our lives by the standard that's put before us, we're going to see that we are totally incapable of loving God or loving neighbor as we should. I mean, we already started behind the eight ball because we were conceived in sin, born sinful from the time our mothers conceived us. Psalm 51, right? We've already blown it even before we were born. So of course, There's no way to earn eternal life. But of course, this man in the text, he refused to acknowledge his inadequacies. Instead, he opted to try to justify himself. And so he asks, who exactly is my neighbor? I I know you say, like, you know, love your neighbor yourself, but who do I have to be neighborly towards? Because, you know, everyone's kind of a really hard sell. So just give me a few people and I can do that. Who do I have to be neighborly towards? That's his real question here. And while the strict definition of neighbor is simply someone who lives next door or in close proximity towards towards you, the word neighbor, as we all know, carries far more weight to it than that. To be neighborly is to exhibit goodwill towards them, to be helpful to them, or at least to live on good and peaceful terms without quarreling. So a neighborly thing to do is to lend the cup of sugar or to cook a meal when they're sick or to mow their lawn when they're out of town or just not to block their driveway. 
the man in the text is asking who he needs to be neighborly towards. And in response, Jesus finally comes to the actual parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, we know this story. I mean, this is basic VBS-level stuff, and we know the meaning. It's, it's very, very clear, right? Uh, the historical concept of that, Samaritans and Jews hated each other, and yet this, this one Samaritan showed merciful love to this poor sap dying in a ditch, despite the fact that they were bitter enemies by nature. Wow, what a great thing that he does. And then to drive home the point, we learn that it's not just that he shows mercy, it's that his own countrymen didn't show mercy. Two religiously upstanding people, a priest and a Levite, they said, well, no, they were too busy. They were too afraid of being made unclean. They were too focused on their priorities to show him even the lowest, most basic level of mercy when he needed it the most. They ignored him. In fact, they did more than just ignore him. They crossed to the other side of the road to get away from him. But not the Samaritan. He showed mercy, compassion to a stranger, regardless of what it did to his schedule, of no matter how much the cost was, no matter the decades of divisiveness between them. And then Jesus finishes up this parable and says, Go and do likewise. And when we hear this story, we hear it, rightly so, as a call to action. Don't be like the priest, right? Don't be like the Levite. Be like the Samaritan. Care for those who are in need regardless of who they are and what it costs us. Jesus is teaching us to show mercy to all people, even to our enemies, because after all, that person is someone that Jesus loved enough to die for. And so we show our obedient love to Jesus by showing love to our neighbor, even if that neighbor happens to be someone we can't stand. It's a good lesson for us. And it's a lesson, unfortunately, that we need to hear again and again and again. And it's absolutely true and imperative to see this as a call to action. But not just a call to action. See, we miss the whole point of the parable if we think it's just a story about being good and doing good and helping other people. It's not a moralistic, works-righteous command. And yet, it's ironic, we so often make it that way. We make this, this parable into exactly the thing that Jesus was preaching against. Because this parable, taken and taught out of context, gets turned into this lesson on what I need to do in order to please God. It makes us the Good Samaritan, who comes along and and loves and serves Jesus with with all of our gifts and our mercy and our compassion. And and we get real busy doing all the things for Jesus, because that's how I'm going to be, that's how I'm going to get eternal life. That's how I'm going to please God. What must I do? And when we teach this parable in this fashion, and only this fashion, we lose the real message here. It's not just a call to action. It is. But it's not just that. 
And if we walk away from this parable asking the very same question as the expert in the law, what must I do to inherit eternal life, then we've walked away with the wrong lesson. Because that's still a nonsensical question. Because the standard of the law is still the same. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. The law is not changed. And if we're honest, we'll admit that we are totally incapable of fulfilling that law. That there is no way to earn eternal life. And that's clear from the text. You see, the lawyer, his goal was to try to justify and save himself. So what did Jesus do? He told a story about a man who couldn't save himself. A man who needed to be saved. A man who needed, who was helpless and who was dying. And we see this as our reality. Especially when we place our lives in context to the Ten Commandments. And to his summary of the law. Because we haven't loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've placed higher importance on temporary things rather than on the one who created all things. And we're far more likely to love ourselves with all of our hearts, souls, and minds, giving in to our every desire, using our blessings for our own gain and nothing else, with a deaf ear to the commands of the Lord. We don't love him with our whole hearts. And we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. We, we may have compassion on some, like those we, we say we love, but can't say the same thing that we, as those who we deem as enemies. And not only that, we turn a blind eye to the needs of others, even the ones that we do say we love. Honey, will you please do the dishes? I didn't hear you. My schedule is too important. I'm, I'm too busy for that. We value ourselves first and foremost. And we end up being like this, like this expert in the law, or like the priest, or like the Levite. And we say, well, I'm too busy. I'm too busy to show even the lowest, most basic level of mercy. Our schedules are too important. My priorities are more important than yours. My life is more important than yours. That's all our sinful nature speaking. And when we look at the standard that's set before us, we realize how impossible it is to achieve it. That despite our noble intentions and our sanctified efforts, we don't love God with everything. And despite our willingness to support a cause, we don't love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. We are far more like the man who had been beaten than the man who stopped to help him. Because we've been attacked by sin. We've been robbed by Satan. We've been lacerated by death. And we are the ones who are unable to help ourselves. So we've heard about the call to action. Where we are called to be like the Good Samaritan. And we are. But there's another role for us to play. We're the man in the ditch. We're the ones who are dying in our sin and in need of rescue. So yes, this is a call to action. A call to action. We need to be neighbors to those in need. But first and foremost, 
It is about how Jesus has been a neighbor to us, that he is the good Samaritan. He's the one who's had mercy on sinners like us, who should be considered his enemies. And so instead of just seeing the good Samaritan as a model for us to emulate, let's see him as a depiction of Jesus. Because in the text, Samaritan was on a journey. We learned just a few weeks ago that Jesus was on a journey. He was on a journey to Jerusalem, right? He set his face to Jerusalem and to the cross. In the text, when the Samaritan saw the man who had been beaten and left on the side of the road, he had compassion on him. And that word compassion, in the, in the NIV, new NIV, it's translated as had pity on him. Don't like that. But that word is actually compassion, and it's exclusively used in the Gospels to refer to Jesus. Jesus is the one who has that kind of compassion. Jesus is the one who looks upon his sinful world and comes alongside us with love. In the story, the Samaritan dressed the man's wounds with oil and with wine. And though we have been wounded and we've been scarred by sin, Jesus binds up our wounds. And he heals us by his grace, pouring on us the waters of baptism, giving us his body and blood and the bread and wine and holy communion. In the story, the Samaritan took this beaten man to an inn and took care of him. And if you read through it, he paid every expense and he charged it all to his own account. In the same way, Jesus has bought you with a price. Not with gold, not with silver, but with his holy and precious blood, with his innocent suffering and death. Jesus Christ, through him, we are those ones that are talked about in Psalm 32. We're the ones who are blessed we're the blessed ones whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, whose sin the Lord does not count against us. And why is that so? Because he's charged it all to his account. It's all been paid for in his blood. Jesus is the good Samaritan. We're the recipients of his grace. And because we have been loved, because we've been rescued, now we go and do likewise. See, in this text, we actually hear three questions. The first one, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Nonsensical. There's nothing for us that we can do to earn what God freely gives to us through Christ's death and resurrection. It's all gift. It's all grace. We are saved and freed and forgiven and healed by Christ and him alone. And then the question, who is my neighbor? It's actually two, two different questions, two different forms, right? The man, when he asks the question, he asks, who do I need to be a neighbor towards? And then Jesus, in his parable, he's actually answering a different question. He's answering, who has acted, who has been the neighbor that you needed? And when we take the first sense, when we take the first one, the man's question, who do I need to be a neighbor towards? The answer is, of course, everyone. Everyone we encounter. We're to care for those who are hurting both physically and spiritually. We're to serve Christ by serving the least of these. Our neighbor is not just those next door. It's those with whom we disagree. It's those who would not love us back. We're to have mercy on them and be neighborly to them. It's a call to action. And in the second case, 
When we look at who has been the neighbor who has saved us, rescued us, brought us back to life, that answer is, of course, Jesus. We take comfort in Jesus, our true neighbor, the one who comes to our rescue, who's had mercy on us regardless of who we are, regardless of what we've done, and no matter what it costs him. Jesus saw us as wounded. Jesus was not afraid to be contaminated. Jesus paid the price and bore our burden. He has had mercy on us. And through him we are saved. It's a call to rest in his grace. And so these two, a call to action and a call to grace, these two must be held together. They must be held together. Perhaps it's best summarized in 1 John's famous verse when it says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You have been saved by his grace and his grace alone. He has bound you up through his love and now he has sent you out. And he says, go and do likewise. Because God has first loved you, so we love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is that you sent Jesus to be our rescuer and to be our healer. Thank you for not looking the other way, but for addressing the problem of sin, for taking it away from us. As we reflect on the Good Samaritan, we pray that the love we show would be a response out of the gratitude for the love that you have shown to us in Christ. So Lord, let us rest in your grace. Let us be moved to give grace to others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.